In the 1920s, as the world reeled from the First World War and the Great Flu Pandemic, people in their collective grief turned to alternative systems of belief. Spiritualism, already making a new rise, was launched into the spotlight as proponents like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle waltzed around the globe giving lectures on the benefits of communicating with the dead. At the same time, there were others who found the subject altogether distasteful. The infamous magician Houdini had a particular fondness for uncovering false mediums, a pastime that would wind up causing some heavy controversy when one of America's oldest magazines proposed a competition to pay $2,500 to the first medium that they could prove to be genuine. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 7, Episode 15. Before we start, just have a quick shout out. If you listen to the podcast on Spotify, you have undoubtedly realised um, that there are, well, if you listen to the back catalogue, that it's not there anymore. Uh, I have had some trouble with Spotify. Uh, I have been in touch with them. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. For a while, the podcast was completely removed from Spotify. I did manage to get them to reinstate it like pretty quick. But unfortunately, the backlog only goes back to March. So it's missing about 150 episodes. I have been in touch with them pretty much constantly for the last two weeks uh, in in efforts to try and make them speed up a little bit. Uh, they promised me that the episodes will be back. But I can't give you a timeline. So if you listen on Spotify and uh, you're in the back catalogue, I'm, I'm sorry, that's the best I've got for you at the moment. I can say that the podcast episodes are available at literally everywhere else and 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 if I may be so bold, literally everywhere else is better to listen to podcasts than Spotify. But, you know, if you like Spotify, you like Spotify and that's where you like listening to it, it will be back. But say, if you can't wait, it is available literally on every other podcast catcher out there. It's even Or even just go on the website, darkhistories.com, it's available there. So the back catalogue is still available for everybody everywhere for free. Um, you could also support the back catalogs completely on Patreon, but that makes me feel really dirty saying it like that because it feels like it's a paywall, which is not. Um, but yeah, I'd say the Spotify thing, not my fault. I don't wish it to be gone. I've had a few emails asking me, you know, oh, why did you remove it? I, I definitely didn't remove it. It's um, it's just a technical issue on Spotify's end. And um, so they have promised that they'll fix it. But how long's a piece of string? Do you know what I mean? Uh, so that's the best I've got for you, really. Say, so, um Aside from that, that's about it. Let's crack on with this episode because it's a gigantic one. Uh, so we'll just move straight on to that. It's called Mina Crandon, Scientific American and the $2,500 Psychical Challenge. In 1918, as the guns fell quiet across Europe and the world, huge numbers of troops flocked across land and sea to return home. Many were completely unaware that they carried with them a new threat. Even before the war was officially over, Cases of influenza had begun to spread all the way from America, through Europe and into China. By the summer of 1918, cases were reported in Australia, Now, as the virus started to recede with only a slightly above average mortality rate for any given flu season, a false sense of security prevailed. Just as the first wave was coming to an end, a second wave broke out and followed a similar path. Facilitated by further troop movements and a propensity to push bad news out of the media spotlight, in order to keep morale high during the last stages of the war, influenza ripped across the globe with a devastating impact. Medical intervention was limited and largely helpless. No flu vaccines would be available for another 22 years, and it was still 10 years before the beginning of the antibiotic revolution. As such, 
Treatment relied heavily on basic quarantine and hygiene. By the end of the year, around a third of the global population had been infected by the pandemic, causing an estimated 50 million deaths. To say the huge loss of life of the war, followed by the flu pandemic, was life-changing for much of the world's population would be something of an understatement. The war alone had sparked deep questions into households who had lost entire generations, and with the pandemic, governments across the world created or revamped health ministries in order to industrialise the science of health. In more spiritual matters, the collective grief felt by nations who had lost huge percentages of their young adults turned to religion for answers, and finding traditional avenues unsatisfactory and impractical, many turned to the more comforting viewpoint put forth by the spiritualists. For those ready to expand their beliefs, the rewards held the potential to allow them to speak to their lost loved ones again, and the comfort of knowing that their spirits continued to exist in another plane, free from pain and suffering. In a world that many had seen advance through discoveries in electricity, microbiology, astrology, wireless telegraphy and photography, it suddenly seemed far easier for one with a rational mind to believe in a hidden spirit realm than it did a conventional materialist Christian god, with whom many felt disillusioned at best and evidently false at worst. In Britain, one of the driving proponents of spiritualism was the famed author of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Like many others, his family had been torn apart by the recent devastation. His own son had managed to survive the brutal fighting of the war after being severely wounded by a piece of shrapnel that tore into his neck in France, but only to fall to the flu pandemic just months later. Several members of his extended family had not even made it that far. His nephew and brother-in-law, along with his wife's nephew, had all died during the war. Finding solace in the booming spiritualist movement, Conan Doyle used his public platform to push the spiritualist line that his family members lived on after death and promote the beliefs that he had been sympathetic to for several decades. Born in 1859, Arthur Conan Doyle grew up a Catholic and attended a Jesuit boarding school for seven years, where he was immersed in a strict religious environment, though it was a keen interest in science that held the greatest sway over his teenage development. Shortly after leaving home to enrol as a medical student at the University of Edinburgh, he discarded much of his Catholic influence declaring himself a religious agnostic and took instead to exploring science and spiritualism, though his first forays into the latter were not entirely satisfactory to him. He was still a medical student in 1880 when he attended a public lecture entitled Does Death End All? He wrote afterwards that he found it very clever but not at all convincing. Still, his interest in the possibilities of the afterlife appeared to have remained and blossomed given that he was known to be an ardent reader of the spiritualist publication Light throughout the 1880s, which he frequently referenced as evidence of his earlier beliefs. After moving to Southsea in 1882, where he opened his first medical practice, he read extensively into the topic of spiritualism and even dabbled in experiments with telepathy, table tipping and automatic writing, though he found his results disappointing. The Society for Psychical Research was celebrating its first decade as an official organisation when Conan Doyle joined in 1893, and he spent a significant amount of time communicating with the members on various elements of spiritualism and the occult. By the time that Conan Doyle had married his second wife, Jean, in 1907 and moved to Crowborough, his dabbling with spiritualism and mediumship had taken a much deeper turn. 
When their ex-nanny and Jean's best friend, Lily Loder Simmons, began channeling the hand of her dead brother, Malcolm, one of three brothers that she had lost to the Great War, Sir Arthur was already a convinced believer, though it took him until 1916 to publicly declare as such, which he did in a letter to Light, within which he displayed a characteristic of his belief that would prove essential when proselytising years later. The amount of evidence proving that there was some form of life after death, he said, was simply too numerous that one marvels that any man calling himself a scientist could dismiss them as unworthy of scientific consideration. It was an important factor in his belief and the way that he spoke about spiritualism. It was not simply a matter of faith, but one of science. It was, he argued, perfectly rational to believe as such if one were simply to consider all the evidence. A few months later, he wrote a piece for The Light entitled The New Revelation, within which he laid it out clearly. Death makes no abrupt change in the process of development, nor does it make an impassable chasm between those who are on either side of it. No trait of the form and no peculiarity of the mind are changed by death, but all are continued in that spiritual body, which is the counterpart to the earthly one at its best, and still contains within it that core of spirit which is the very inner essence of the man. By the end of the war, he had taken up public speaking on the subject, delivering lectures across England on the glories in an existence after death and our abilities to communicate with the dead. Critically, he continued to push a line that the idea was not at all incompatible with existing religions nor science. For the booming religion, it was a huge boon to have someone with the profile of Conan Doyle on board, despite his enthusiasm for spiritualism not being entirely free of criticism. Nevertheless, whilst traditional religious clergy warned against dabbling with the occult worlds and scientific and psychical sceptics considered wholesale adoption of spiritualist belief to be anti-ethical, his voice still gave credence to many who looked up to the respected author. On the night his son died, Conan Doyle was given a lecture in Nottingham, where he stood at the plinth and told the audience, Not to worry, my son survives. By 1922, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was considered as either a leading light in the European spiritualist revival or a complete crackpot who had fallen far off the deep end, depending on your outlook. In September of 1922, he had published a book called The Coming of the Fairies, topping off almost two years of articles that he'd written on fairies and which contained a reprinted series of five photographs purportedly taken by two young girls Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths at the bottom of their garden showing crude cardboard cutouts of fairies that were supposedly dancing around the girls as they stared off dreamily into the distance. Sadly, for Conan Doyle, the images were not quite as convincing as he believed and a good portion of the press openly ridiculed him for entertaining their authenticity. For those curious on the matters of spiritualism or for the growing number of ardent believers, his public talks on any matter of psychical phenomena were important work for the cause, and it was on that premise that he boarded a ship in April of 1922, set to embark on a speaking tour of America, where he hoped to install a similar fire for the psychical on that side of the Atlantic. America had not been a stranger to spiritual mediums and psychical phenomena. It was, after all, the home of the Fox sisters, who had gained a great deal of fame almost 75 years earlier when they had shown the world they could communicate with spirits. Since their confessions of frauds in 1888, however, spiritualism and mediumship in America had been viewed with a great deal of suspicion and no small amount of derision. 
Now, Conan Doyle was making the pilgrimage across the water to tell the world how science and spiritualism were one and the same. On his opening night, he gave a talk on the existence of the afterlife to three and a half thousand New Yorkers crammed into a packed-out Carnegie Hall. In his speeches, he told of his experiences sitting at seances throughout Europe, of seeing his mother's face materialise in the air before him, of how communication with the dead is possible via ectoplasm, and he gave a detailed description of the afterlife, including a possibility of marriage between spirits. His tour was front-page news in every city that he lectured in, though, just as in Britain before, he was not always given a free ride, as evidenced by Oregon's News Review, who gave a single paragraph to the famous author in order to point out that not everyone had the time for his blubber. Just like in Europe, however, Conan Doyle was catching a wave in America, who were experiencing a similar rise in the realm of metaphysics, and for every critical voice, there were several more who were willing to give the author a chance to state his case. At the end of his tour, as he boarded his ship to return home to England, he told the press of how he prophesied a great landslide in spiritualist belief throughout America that would see it dominate as the prevailing religion. Whatever one's belief in the subject, there was no denying that the American press had relished every moment of the tour, plastering the controversy across their front pages every step of the way, and that the public had eaten it up. The religious critics fumed, so dangerous was the spiritualist message. The psychical sceptics harkened back to the long string of frauds to mediums that had come and gone over the last 75 years, and the devout trumpeted in delight as they found new hope in a more agreeable future. Spiritualism, whether you liked it or not, was a hot topic, and if Conan Doyle had proved anything, it was that it had a surefire audience in America, whose press were ready and willing to facilitate its message. Founded in New York in 1845, Scientific American is the oldest continuously printed magazine in the United States. In its 177-year-long history, it has attracted some of the world's biggest names in science to write articles, including Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Mary Curie and Nikola Tesla. Its founding, however, was not quite as smooth as its distinguished history would suggest, and it was sold, along with its subscription list of over 200 members, within a year to Orson Say Munn and Alfred Eli Beach under the moniker of Munn & Company for less than $1,000. Capitalising on the popularisation of science in the 19th century, Munn steered the magazine to success from the very beginning, and before long, it fostered a reputation as the premier publication for inventors, workshop tinkerers and scientists from an ever-expanding list of disciplines. Despite its lofty position in the world of publishing, the Scientific American was not above stooping low to capitalise on populist appeal. It had jumped aboard the craze for spirit mediums early on, printing articles on subjects like spirit photography and telepathy and offering up expert opinions which never failed to sit on the fence. This approach to the subject was exactly why, in 1922, Orson Munn II and the magazine's chief editors were in a meeting to discuss a proposal put forth to them by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle during his time in America. Recognising it as a magazine with a stellar reputation and significant clout in the scientific world, Conan Doyle had approached Munn to propose a serious and dignified investigation into psychical phenomena. The proposal was more than that, though. Conan Doyle had challenged them to stop sitting on the fence and provide an editorial opinion on the matter. He was, the editors felt, questioning their dedication to curiosity and investigation. 
accepting the spiritualist proposal, Munn wrote back to Conan Doyle to let him know that not only did they accept his challenge, they would be putting their money where their mouth was by publishing a public call for psychics and mediums to come forward and be tested. If they could crown a single one as genuine, they would award them a prize of $2,500. An initial announcement was made in the December 22nd edition of the magazine, along with a lengthy article on psychical phenomena under the headline, A Square Deal for the Psychics. Announcing $5,000 for Psychic Phenomena As a contribution towards psychic research, the Scientific American pledges the sum of $5,000 to be awarded for conclusive psychic manifestations. On the basis of existing data, we are unable to reach a definite conclusion as to the validity of psychic claims. In the effort to clear up this confusion and to present our readers with first-hand and authenticated information regarding this most baffling of all studies, we are making this offer. The Scientific American will pay $2,500 to the first person who produces a psychic photograph under its test conditions and to the full satisfaction of the eminent men who will act as judges. The Scientific American will pay $2,500 to the first person who produces a visible psychic manifestation of other character under these conditions and to the full satisfaction of these judges. Purely mental phenomena like telepathy or purely auditory ones like rappings will not be eligible for this award. The contest does not revolve around the psychological or religious aspects of the phenomena, but has to do only with the genuineness and objective reality. A follow-up a month later in January 1923 edition detailed the rules and introduced the world to the five men who would be judging the contest. Largely, the magazine opted to keep much of its plans close to its chest, including the host of gadgets and contraptions that they had lined up in the office's library in New York which they had converted to a full-on psychical research laboratory, including galvanometers, induction coils and electroscopes, gadgets and contraptions to measure pressure and sound, and even experimental UV cameras. The article did, however, lay out the basic entry requirements for the contest. First and foremost, entrants had to have held a successful seance with attendees being satisfied that they had witnessed psychical phenomena before they would be considered as worthy of the competition's time. Those deemed worthy were to take part in preliminary sittings before a subcommittee, before the magazine's full committee would be called to action. And finally, the conditions for the awarding of the prize were laid out, with the entrants requiring unanimous or a four-to-one vote in favour from the judges. Finally, the judges were introduced. As the magazine stated in its January piece, the judges had not been picked at random. A dramatic understatement, if ever there was one. The five men had all been picked for their individual experience and knowledge. For the psychology angle, William McDougall, Harvard Chair of Psychology and President of the American Society for Psychical Research was enlisted, whilst Walter Franklin Prince, the Principal Research Officer for the American Society for Psychical Research and esteemed psychical investigator, Harrowood Carrington, were signed on to the jury for their psychical experience. Daniel Frost Comstock, former MIT faculty member's Former MIT faculty member, physicist, inventor and chair of the science advisory panel for the American Society for Psychical Research was on board to take care of the technological aspect of the investigation. Finally, the feather in the cap for the Scientific American was Harry Houdini, the infamous escape artist and illusionist, was enlisted for his experience in theatrics that would help the committee to unravel any clever trickery. In truth, Houdini brought a formidable reputation to the group 
having been a somewhat renowned psychic debunker himself. The magazine's editor, Malcolm Bird, was to sit as the secretary of the committee, whose main role was to fill in the blanks between the five other jury members. If the competition had been quiet news before the announcement of the jury, it was to be no longer, especially with the announcement that Houdini was to take part in what the New York Times had dubbed the greatest spook hunt of modern times. It was, it wrote, to be a sympathetic ghost hunt, with no desire to discredit anyone, but merely to ascertain the truth. It all sounded very gentlemanly, but the reality was very different. With the inclusion of Houdini on the panel, the Scientific American had stirred up a somewhat uncomfortable and spiteful rivalry that would go on to dictate the competition from the start. Born in Budapest in 1874 as the third son of seven children, Eric Weiss grew up as the relatively poor son of a Jewish rabbi. He had moved to America at the age of four after his father gained a rabbinical position in Appleton, Wisconsin. From an early age, Eric found a great deal of excitement for the travelling circuses who would roll up out of town and sell tickets at a price that even the Weisses could afford now and then. Sent to apprentice as a locksmith at 12 years old, Eric soon found the world a restrictive place, and with an air of desperation, he skipped out of his position and aboard a train that would offer him the best path to providing for his family, one that he had seen in the circuses as the performers breathed fire, walked across coals and juggled swords. Eric's path to magic was not a straightforward one. The first few years of his boxcar hopping more than likely saw him earning a pittance with street performances that had more in common with begging than the circus, and after touring much of the Midwest aboard freight trains, he eventually found himself back in New York, where he reunited with his father and took a job as a newsboy. His father had failed to lock down any positions as a rabbi, and instead was tutoring in Hebrew, which, combined with Eric's small income, was enough for the entire family to move cross-country and back together in the city. As Eric grew, so too did his athletic prowess, and he kept fit by running, swimming and boxing, and practising gymnastics, even competing in his spare time when he wasn't working in the textile factories within which he had found further employment. It was a humdrum existence for a young man with big dreams, though it seemed to have taken the shock of his father's death to wake him up from his slumber. Keen to earn a good living in order to look after his family, especially his mother, who he dearly loved, Eric set his mind to magic and the enticing lights of the stage, embracing the moniker of Harry Houdini, taken from the French illusionist Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. He began performing with his brother Dash as a sideshow act in the Dime Museums, among the curios and freaks that drew the largest crowds. Snake charmers who could withstand viper bites, fire eaters swallowing burning knives, and illusionists immune to pain with the, with the power of mind over body. The whole time, he watched these acts with interest, reverse-engineering the tricks of the trade and developing them in new directions, in acts that he would perform himself. After marrying Bess Rana in an elopement that would have shocked his new wife's Roman Catholic family, Houdini proposed Bess replace Dash in his magical performances. Teaching her how to perform as a psychic medium with the ability to read minds was a legacy from Houdini's earlier days with the freaks, when he witnessed countless hoax mediums fleece good crowds for their hard-earned money. Their act progressed in terms of skill, but faltered when it came to financial success, and after trying and failing to open a magical school in New York, the Houdinis, Harry and Bess, found themselves working in Kansas, back on the travelling show circuit. 
Fortunately for him, however, Houdini's new boss, a doctor with questionable medical qualifications, saw a talent in the couple that he thought could turn a crowd. Sensing a rising interest in spiritualism, the doctor suggested he try his hand at performing as a spiritualist medium. Feeling as though he was already on the bottom rung, Houdini conceded, why not? Before long, Houdini found himself tied in a cabinet, restrained in a broad daylight for all the crowd to see, before he would apparently utilise the powers of the spirits to make instruments jump and sing. All the while, he would combine cold reading with cursory research into a town's graveyards to read the minds of his enamoured audiences and stun them with revelations from their dead loved ones. The whole thing sat poorly with Houdini, however, who felt the trade of a sham medium to be unethical. Fortunately for the Houdinis, they would soon wind up performing in front of Martin Beck, a vaudeville theatre owner who had founded the Orpheum circuit, which dominated the vaudevillians across the United States. Beck proposed Houdini cut down his act and focus on what he did best, his escape performances, and he offered to take him on if he agreed. This single opportunity would wind up to be the true birth of the great Houdini, who would spend the next 20 years stunning audiences around the world and on the screen with his almost supernatural acts of escape, though he would forever maintain that there was nothing out of this world about his illusions whatsoever. Everything he did on stage and screen, he ensured the press, obeyed the laws of earthly physics. It was in 1920, during his first ever tour of Britain, that Houdini met with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He had been in contact with the famous author throughout the winter before his arrival and had discussed matters of the spirit world enthusiastically. Since the death of his mother seven years earlier, Houdini had showed a new sympathetic eye towards spiritualism, though he approached the subject with a heavy scepticism, driven by the fact that most of the seances that he had taken part in as an audience member were running exactly the same scams that he had run himself back on the travelling circuit. He had already unmasked several prominent psychic mediums as hoaxers back home in America, and the practice had almost become a hobby unto itself alongside his genuine interest in the occult. Still, he assured Conan Doyle throughout their exchanges that he was keeping his mind open and would truly love to meet a genuine psychic medium if such a thing existed. For Conan Doyle's part, he knew that they existed and he was convinced he could introduce just such a medium to Houdini during his time in Britain. Having witnessed several of his escape acts, he wasn't even entirely convinced that the escape artist wasn't a powerful medium himself. During his stay in England, Houdini spent several nights at Conan Doyle's family home in Crowborough, performing magic tricks for the children and talking about spiritualism with Sir Arthur. Together, they toured several prominent spiritualist circles, sitting at seances night after night, as Houdini searched for a sign that his mother may still exist somewhere in another plane. But it was all to no use. By the end of his trip, he had sat at dozens of seances, and not a single one had impressed him enough that he could concede that they were anything more than impressive tricks. Despite Conan Doyle's assertions that they were visiting some of the best mediums in the country, Houdini wrote in his diary that it had all been ridiculous stuff. When Conan Doyle had visited America in 1922 for his whirlwind spiritualist speaking tour, Houdini watched on as part of the crowd in the Carnegie Hall. By now, the two were great friends, having maintained their communications for the past two years. However, Houdini had still not managed to see the light that Conan Doyle continued to profess was there if only the magician would approach the subject with less scepticism. Houdini travelled to Atlantic City to stay with Sir Arthur's family once more and after several days of congeniality, 
Jean, Arthur's wife, offered to hold a seance for the magician, as she had been a practising medium for some time and was, apparently, fairly proficient in automatic writing. That evening, they sat down together and Jean fell into a trance, announcing to the sitters that she had made contact with Houdini's dead mother. Her hand jerked and twitched as she wrote a letter to the magician from beyond in a tense, scribbled pen. Oh, my darling, my darling, thank God at last I am through. I have tried, oh, so often. Now I am happy. Of course, I want to talk to my boy, my own beloved boy. My only shadow has been that my beloved one has not known how often I have been with him all the while. I want him only to know that, that I have bridged the gulf. That is what I wanted. Oh, so much. Now I can rest in peace. Houdini was impressed by the evening, or at least... That was the impression that he had left them with after he had waved them goodbye from the docks of New York several days later. In truth, the seance had been something of the last straw for Houdini, who told the New York Sun as much shortly after in an article within which he called all believers of spiritualism self-deluded and followers of spook tricks. Unsurprisingly, it was the last straw for Houdini and Sir Arthur's friendship at the same time, after the author felt, quite rightly, that his religion and his wife were both being attacked in public. Houdini explained the reason for his disappointment with the seance that they had conducted together in his final letter to the author. I was heartily in accord and sympathy at the seance, but the letter was written entirely in English and my sainted mother could not read, write or speak in the English language. I did not care to discuss it at the time because of my emotion in trying to sense the presence of my mother if there was such a thing possible to keep me quiet until time passed and I could give it the proper deduction. I trust my clearing up of the seance from my point of view is satisfactory and that you do not harbour any ill feelings because I hold both Lady Doyle and yourself in the highest esteem. I know you treat this as a religion but personally I cannot do so for up to the present time I have never seen or heard anything that could convert me. Trusting that you will accept my letter in the same honest good faith and feeling as it has been written. But Sir Arthur did harbour ill feelings. In fact, the deepness of the divide was such that when he found out that the Scientific American had installed Houdini upon the jury for their psychic investigation, he was incensed, convinced that he would come into the contest with a biased and antagonistic opinion. Already upset by the sensational introduction of the large prize money, Conan Doyle insisted to Munn that in order to maintain their integrity and control, they must work together to ensure a serious list of contenders. Just like that, the Scientific American's psychical investigation had progressed from a competition for the spiritualists into a competition between Houdini and Conan Doyle, sceptic versus believer, in many ways the embodiments of the public beliefs at large. In order to appease Conan Doyle's fears and in an effort to curb frivolous applications, Malcolm Bird travelled to Britain in order to seek out some of the religion's best and brightest. Conan Doyle preferred Bird to Houdini immediately, not least because from the very outset he seemed willing to believe. In a whirlwind tour across Europe, they visited mediums and sat for seances from London to Berlin, and though Bird thought he met several mediums that could prove worthy entrance, all that he reached out to and invited turned him down, unwilling to cater to the Scientific American's strict rule set and investigation. In the end, he returned to America without a single European entrant, but with a host of seance experiences that he felt would hold him in good stead for the competition. He also returned with Conan Doyle, who had proposed himself as something of an advisor, 
and the two continued their search for worthy mediums once they hit American shores. In the end, it took them almost five months to secure their first entrant. George Valentine was a Pennsylvanian spirit medium who claimed to have been guided through the spirit realm by a host of dead characters, including an opera singer and two Native Americans, Hawk Chief and Kokum. Bird liked him from the outset, impressed by his use of xenoglossy, having been recorded speaking 11 different languages in various seances, despite only speaking English himself. Like many mediums of the time, he made constant use of a spirit trumpet, a metal trumpet-shaped conical device that was usually placed on a table and then levitated around the room during a seance, blaring out voices of the dead as it whipped about the room. Valentine's first series of sittings in the Scientific American Library seemed to go fairly well. He managed to levitate his trumpet around the room, channel voices and pluck the strings of instruments placed within the room. At times, he spoke of a young boy who was running about the room and asked him to touch the sitters, who all felt his cold hand in the dark. Unfortunately for Valentine, his chair had been rigged with a series of electrical contacts, sensitive to the weight on the chair, and this was attached to a red light bulb in a second room that was watched over by an assistant with a watch who would mark down all the times when the light turned on, indicating that Valentine had left his chair. When the assistant's notes were cross-referenced with the dictated notes of each seance, the investigators found out that every case of supposed spirit manifestation coincided with Valentine leaving his chair. Aware that he was frauding the committee, the final seance on the 24th of May, just three days after they had begun sitting for the judges, Bird allowed him to hang himself by feeding him a choice selection of bunk information concerning a fictional dead friend of his named Harry Mayer, who Valentine then proceeded to make contact with garbling out a host of nonsense information. In the press, Houdini took no prisoners, saying, I never saw such awkward work in my life. It was a bit of a damp squib as far as the beginnings of the contest could have gone, but as the committee would find out, there were plenty more opportunities for the spiritualists yet. Months passed once more before a new candidate rose to the Scientific American's challenge, but eventually, in October 1923, Five months after the expose of Valentine, Reverend Josie K. Stewart stepped up to the plate after being heartily recommended by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Josie Stewart was a pastor of the First Independent Church of Ohio, and at least on paper, she boasted an impressive mediumship quality, whereby she proposed to be capable of manifesting spirit writing by simply placing the petals of a flower in between two pieces of card, which a spirit would then use as ink turning the petal onto writing on the card of the same colour as the original flower. Unfortunately, once up in front of the committee, she had a degree of trouble getting the ectoplasm flowing, and her first two sittings were a complete blank, in which she was unable to produce a shred of supernatural phenomena. After the third test drew a third consecutive blank, she complained that the library was detrimental to her efforts, calling it infertile ground. Instead, she proposed to take the test outside into nature, where she was much more comfortable. The following day, the group took a sitting in a garden instead, and after Stuart requested an overcoat to protect her from the chill October air, she was finally able to get things working. Mrs Stuart, in broad daylight, and after a search of her person, produced, under conditions never before attempted, independent spirit writing on small white index cards, the property of the investigating committee. First, she pressed freshly plucked flowers between the cards and laid her hands on top of the pile. 
Then, after an appeal by Mrs. Stewart for the women present to pray for her success, half a dozen spirit messages in pink and heliotrope writing were revealed, written on what had been blank spaces. Among these spirit writings were messages from the late William James, noted psychologist of Harvard University and brother of Henry James, and the signature of the late William T. Stead. The cards showed fairly mundane messages, such as how happy I should have been for an opportunity such as this, which had apparently been written by William James. However, the display managed to impress the committee, which consisted of two members of the jury, Walter Franklin Prince and Hereward Carrington, along with Malcolm Bird and several other members of staff at the magazine. Their first port of call was to send the cards off to a lab in order to inspect the chemical makeup of the ink, as well as checking them under a microscope to see if any of the writing had left indentations in the card to suggest that it had been written by a pen. The next day, another seance was attempted back in the Scientific American Library, but once again, it drew a blank. In every sitting, Mrs. Stewart had intensely scrutinised a pack of cards handed to her by the investigators, in efforts, she told them, to discard dirty cards. However, she seemed to be looking for something else, which she may well have found, given that the investigators had pricked each card with a tiny pinprick in each corner in order to identify them as the same cards that they had originally handed out to her. Mrs. Stewart also had a habit of tearing up cards at random times, considering them soiled or defunct of any power. Sadly for her, the investigators had been collecting the scraps after every seance and piecing them back together in order to keep account of how many cards she had handled. Before the third seance, it turned out that the committee were missing five cards, which, coincidentally, was the precise number of cards that would go on to display spirit writing during the garden seance. Interestingly, the evidence that they had gotten back from the lab showed that the cards with spirit writing were not actually the original cards handed to her by the committee at all, but rather substitutions that weighed or measured tiny fractions less than the originals. Most damningly, however, was the testimony of Prince, who had actually seen Mrs. Stewart perform a simple sleight-of-hand trick in order to switch the blank cards with the ones that she had previously written on. The magazine publicly called her out as a fraud, which promptly called to an end to the second investigation, though not before Mrs. Stewart threatened to sue them, unsuccessfully, for libel. With two down, the committee next turned to the Chicago-based Elizabeth Thompson, who entered the competition just two weeks after the unceremonial dumping of Mrs. Stewart. Elizabeth Thompson's claim to spiritualist fame was the ability to manifest ectoplasm and spirit apparitions from inside a spirit cabinet. Even before the test started, her inclusion had stirred a degree of controversy, given that she had been called out as an established hoaxer previously. Unsurprisingly, the test didn't turn out at all well, and after she arrived at the Scientific American Library and declared the place unfit for her brand of psychic qualities, she stormed out never to return. The whole affair was rather fortunate, really, given that she was publicly called out as a hoaxer just days later, following a seance where she was caught smuggling reams of muslin cloth, a common substitute for mediums looking to hoax a spirit manifestation, into her spirit cabinet. Following the letdown of Elizabeth Thompson, the fourth candidate to come forward for testing in December of 1923 was the 24-year-old Italian-born medium Nino Pecoraro. Both Hereward Carrington and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had already seen Pecoraro work and been significantly impressed by his abilities, which included channeling spirits to ring bells, play instruments, 
blow whistles and tilt seance tables, all whilst being confined to a straitjacket inside a spirit cabinet. Once again, the initial seances started well, as Pecoraro fell in a convincing trance, allowing the investigators to stick pins in his legs without showing any reaction, as well as to shine lights into his eyes. All the while, instruments inexplicably danced in the dark. It was enough of a result to impress Bird, who decided to summon Houdini from his tour, pulling him all the way from Arkansas to New York in order for him to observe the young man's sittings. The magician arrived sceptical from the start, convinced that he was utilising the skills of an amateur escape artist in order to perform his trickery, and so, in a gruelling hour and 45 minutes setup, which saw Houdini order Nino's hands to be stitched into a pair of gloves that were, in turn, stitched into the pockets of his coat and numerous small lengths of rope tied all around his body. Unsurprisingly, that night, no manifestations occurred, nor for the further three nights attended by Houdini. After he had felt he had made his case, Houdini left for the road once again, whilst a fourth seance took place without him, which naturally provided a host of spirit movement. Nevertheless, after Houdini's showing, the committee were gradually feeling less and less convinced of his abilities, though some suggested that his trances were at least genuine and that he may have been hoaxing without realising it. They booked Nino in for a fourth round of testing in the new year, however, they would never conclusively find out if he was genuine or hoaxing either way, as the medium backed out soon after and never returned to the New York offices. By now, the Scientific Americans contest had been running for a full year, and despite it gaining some fantastic commercial attention, proving to be a hit with the press and for its own subscription numbers, it had, so far, been something of a letdown. Even the magazine itself had produced an article suggesting that the event had lapsed into comedy. Most of the mediums who had applied had not been of sufficient quality, and those that had been recommended by Conan Doyle had offered up nothing but cheap circus trickery. It was time for something drastic, and so the magazine put out a public call for the most famous and best mediums to come forward to enter the competition and take the prize. They also re-emphasised that they were not out to catch crooks and that they did not begin investigating a medium with that assumption and that they were a friendly band of investigators just looking to discover the truth. Their appeal worked. Mina Crandon was the wife of an esteemed Harvard graduate and preeminent surgeon, Dr. Leroy Goddard Crandon. Born in Ontario, Canada in 1888, she had grown up on a rural farm before moving to Boston as a young woman where she worked as a church secretary and met grocer Earl Rand, whom she married and together had a son with which they named John. During the First World War, she volunteered as an ambulance driver, which was how she met Roy Crandon in 1918, who was working as the head of surgical staff in the New England Naval Hospital. Coincidentally, she had met him a few months previously while suffering appendicitis, and Roy had been her surgeon, though how much of that meeting she actually remembered is anyone's guess. Nevertheless, as an ambulance driver, she took a shine to the doctor and within months had filed for divorce from Earl and taken the doctor's hand in marriage as his third wife. She and her son, John, moved into the doctor's Beacon Hill house, a tall four-storey red brick affair, and the pair quickly grew into their new life as socialites, he, the successful doctor, and she, the beautiful young wife. Mina especially took well to her new life, thriving amongst the crowds at dinners and evening soirees, where her natural charisma made her an instant hit within Boston's polite society. Despite the fact that Roy's grandfather was purportedly something of a medium, neither of the Crandons had shown much interest in spiritualism, nor religion at all for that matter. Roy, 
had been living for some time as an open atheist, and Mina's impression of spiritualism had been gathered at a soul seance that she had sat in on with a friend for a spot of fun where she had spent the majority of the evening doing her best to stifle her laughter, whilst the medium attempted to channel the spirit of her dead brother Walter. Pushing aside her obvious scepticism, at the end of the evening the medium took it upon himself to suggest that he felt that Mina displayed all the qualities of a spiritualist communicator and he felt fairly convinced that she was harbouring undeveloped mediumistic powers. How much of the suggestion that she took on board is unknown, but at least for the time being, she put the event behind her and continued on with their life, sans conversations with the spirits. Dr Crandon, on the other hand, had met with the British physicist and spiritualist Oliver Lodge whilst he was on tour in America, and found himself rather taken by the new outlook. Attracted by the scientific angle of an afterlife, he immersed himself in the subject, staying up late at night to thumb his way through handfuls of occult and spiritualist texts. When Mina had mentioned her own experiences sitting at a seance and being told that she was a potential medium, the doctor hand-waved it away. Despite all his newfound enthusiasm for the other side, he still found professional mediums to be a terribly crooked bunch. And for a while, the Crandons continued their life as such, until something changed in May of 1923. Whilst the Scientific American was gearing up to put their first entrant to the investigative sword, Mina and Roy Crandon were preparing a narrow wood-panelled room on the top floor in their house to seat their first ever seance. As the group sat in the dark, silence fell across the room, and then, much to everyone's surprise, the table in front of them began rocking, violently back and forth. In order to ascertain which of the sitters was doing the channelling, they left the room one at a time and waited for the rocking to stop, which it did the moment Mina stepped up from her seat. The evening had been a shock to everyone, not least Mina and Roy, but the pair decided that now the box had been opened, they should continue their exploration. They formed a small spiritualist circle, which they named the ABC Club, that would sit at the Crandon's house, and within which they hoped to develop Mina's burgeoning and mediumship capabilities. The group's main spiritualists were Dr Mark and Josephine Richardson, a pair of friends who had lost their two-year-old son to polio. Everyone else were relative newcomers, including Dr Caldwell and Brown and their wives, as well as Frederick Adler and Alec Cross. Despite the group's inexperience, their seances quickly evolved into dramatic exhibitions of spirit manifestations, mainly revolving around the seance table, which tipped and turned and answered simple yes and no questions by replying with muted raps. Before long, the table was lurching towards sitters. At one point, he even reportedly forced Dr Caldwell out of the room and down the hallway as it bowled after him entirely of its own volition. Hoping to step up the communication aspect of the sittings, Roy proposed to Mina that she should try slipping herself into a trance and attempt to channel her spirit a suggestion that Mina herself was not so keen about. Naturally, the group decided to leave the decision up to the wraps of the table, which by now they had deduced had been from the spirit of Mina's dead brother, Walter, who had perished in a railway accident 12 years prior. As it turned out, Walter was quite keen to give the trance a try, and so Mina covered her face with her hands and began swaying back and forth. Before long, she was bellowing out to the room, I said I could put this through! in a deep voice that all in attendance were convinced was the voice of Walter. When she came to, the sitters all clamoured to feel how wet her forehead had become from conducting the trance, which they were convinced was residual ectoplasm. 
After channeling the voice of Walter to the ABC club, the group continued to grow as Roy invited his Harvard buddies to investigate their little seance circle. By now, Walter's appearances were a slick act as he whistled to the room to announce his arrival and then proceeded to ring out piano notes, clatter chains across the floor and even levitate the table, though it was only for a few inches and a brief period. As the sittings passed, however, the performances from Walter continued to grow and soon the table was floating at shoulder height and even dancing to music that the sitters played from a Victrola in the corner of the room. On one particularly dramatic evening, Walter told the group to take the table downstairs into the living room, and once there, he made it float over to the piano and actually play the keys, though one assumes that without individual fingers, the tune was not altogether one of much beauty. With so much activity occurring during their seances, Dr Crandon could only see one natural step to take next, and that was to contact Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to make him aware of his wife's abilities and ask him how he would suggest they proceed as a circle in order to support her abilities. It was a small step for Conan Doyle to contact the Scientific American Committee and suggest that they check out Mina. At first, the Harvard Chair of Psychology, William McDougall, was sent alone to view the sittings and test the waters to see if she deserved a full investigation. But soon after, Bird was also sent for. Their first impressions were that Mina was charming and beautiful and rather more down-to-earth than the mediums that they had tested so far for their competition. They had tried some early controls, but so far they had been rather limited. Tests, such as placing a mouthful of water in Mina's mouth and then asking Walter to talk, had all shown positive results. Nevertheless, Mina's trance performances impressed Bird, who somewhat characteristically found the seances impressive. There was one hitch for the Scientific American, however, McDougall and Bird had suggested to the pair that they enter the competition, but neither had shown much enthusiasm for the idea. $2,500 was a lot of money in 1923, but the Crandons were not hurting for money. Mina did not really want the press attention, and besides, they already had plans to visit Europe that winter. In December, the Crandons met Conan Doyle in London, where Mina impressed him by manifesting Walter, who tossed a spirit trumpet around the room, levitated a table and displayed his new talent for reporting various objects into the seance room, including, at one point, a live pigeon. Whilst in Europe, Mina sat for the Society for Psychical Research in London, as well as for psychical researchers in Paris, who she all left absolutely gobsmacked with their mediumship skills. On their final night in England, the two stayed with Arthur Conan Doyle in London and held a private seance, which concluded a fantastic success. After they had returned to America in the new year, Mina's seances continued to grow rapidly as Walter apparated ashtrays and flowers into the seance room and Mina began summoning spirit lights in an effort to summon a full-bodied apparition of Walter. Since their return, they had kept in contact with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was, by now, heavily advocating for Mina to enter the Scientific American's contest. Eventually, Roy caved and submitted Mina as an official applicant on the grounds that Mina would be referred to as Marjorie in any press coverage in order to conceal her identity. The Scientific American agreed and Mina Crandon became the magazine's fifth contestant, a shining light in a sea of ridiculous hoaxes. Sir Arthur was growing in confidence for a successful result by the day. Now an official applicant... Mina's seances began under the close scrutiny of Malcolm Bird in April of 1924. The group of Harvard scientists who had been attending seances with Mina for the past year or so 
were folded into the Scientific American's preliminary research group, who agreed with the committee that they would assemble a full report on Mina before they would deem her worthy of calling for the full group to investigate. The magazine's first report on Mina, which did not mention her at all by any name, was gushing as Bird wrote that she was potentially one of the objective's strongest mediums yet known. In her favour, the piece pointed out that the seances were not operated on a professional money-making level, and in fact likely cost the Crandons money, given that they fed the sitters at each seance and then afterwards put them up for the night in their own home. Mina had also decided that if she were to win the prize money, then she would donate it to fund further psychical research into mediumship by the magazine. The piece was, however, littered with no small degree of Bird's enamorment for Mina, which might have led the sceptical or cynical to question how much he was impressed with her mediumship and how much her well-renowned charismatic charm. Regardless, the preliminary group continued to meet in Boston to sit alongside the ABC group, where Walter continued to grow in scope. The faint spirit lines that had begun to apparate before had now turned into the shape of a bat, which the group named Susie. Whilst atmospherical effects coincided with manifestations, with cool breezes being felt and the temperature dropping in the room as much as 20 degrees. Mina, who by now sat perched in a spirit cabinet, would routinely rock and break the wooden contraptions, with Walter supposedly ripping them apart around her. Walter's voice continued to bellow into the room, even whilst Mina's mouth was covered, and the Victrola, which had been set up to play Walter's favourite songs, would warble and slow as the platter's speed fluctuated back and forth and the needles scratched across the surface of the records. Daniel Comstock, the jury's MIT specialist, was called in to inspect both the Victrola and all the wiring in the house, but both passed any checks that he could think to carry out. All the time, as the tests grew in difficulty and the hurdles placed before Mina grew in height, Walter, who had always been a spirit prone to cheek, continues to grow more and more cocky, at times straight up baiting the investigators, belittling their investigation and calling their gadgets and tools foolish. By now, around half of the committee were utterly convinced by Mina's mediumship, whilst the other half had either not visited at all or were still reserving judgement believing her to have been carrying out some impressive trickery. Walter Franklin Prince, who had always been a somewhat tougher nut to crack throughout the competition, was especially cautious, until one day, when Walter suggested that he sit with Mina for an exclusive one-to-one seance in the middle of the day. Prince agreed, and so, at 2.30pm the following day, he crept up the four flights of stairs to the small top room and began setting up the seance covering the windows with a thick curtain, casting the room into a dim light as the sun crept through the cracks. Finally, he sat down opposite Mina and the seance began. At first, the pair sat quietly, nothing happening, and then Walter came, whistling his arrival. Walter had not come alone, however. He was there with Prince's dead wife, a fact that he proved by relaying details to Prince that Mina should not have been privy to. It had been a tense session, and after a short break, the pair sat again for a further seance. This time was just like the first, with the pair sitting in a tense silence. Only this time, the silence continued. And continued. For over an hour, the two sat in silence before finally, Walter rang the bell box on the table. For the rest of the seance, Prince commanded Walter to ring the box, which he did on command every single time. The result of the seance saw Prince soften towards Mina greatly, 
whether or not he was ready to be a believer, she was unsure, but at least he seemed to act more friendly to her from then on. That July, the New York Times wrote a piece on Mina, who, as agreed, they called Marjorie, whilst Walter's name was changed to Chester. The piece summed up the positivity surrounding the Scientific American Committee's feelings towards the seances and with Mina. In further sessions with Marjorie, the private and uncommercial Boston medium, many scientific men have been unable to find the slightest evidence of fraud in her manifestations, which include the spontaneous appearance of a great variety of lights, the apparent passing of a window pole through the arms and legs of the investigators, the wrecking of cabinets by unseen hands, the playing of invisible ukuleles and piano by invisible hands. The investigators, who had been puzzled by the Boston woman, are the same ones who had previously discovered fraud in the work of other mediums after only one, two or three sittings. The proof of Marjorie's psychic powers is not complete, according to Mr. Bird, who, in summary of the recent seances in the August Scientific American, made the following comment. Marjorie seems to make progress toward rock-rib demonstration, so, since neither her patients nor ours appears to approach exhaustion, we go right on with her. It was in keeping with the reports written up by Bird in the Scientific American, but it was not in keeping at all with Houdini's thoughts on the matter, who had, as yet, still not even seen Mina perform, and he was not at all happy. Concerned for his reputation, he travelled to Boston the very next day. Bird met Houdini at the train station and drove him to the Crandons in the early afternoon. Despite the tense situation that was growing into something of a psychical showdown, Houdini and Mina got along perfectly well, with Houdini telling her all about the loss of his mother and his search into spiritualism, whilst Mina gave him a tour of the local neighbourhood. The committee and the Crandons all had dinner together, and then afterwards, Houdini gave the house a preliminary once-over, finding nothing suspicious, and then the group climbed the long stairs to the top floor to begin their first seance together. Once everyone was sitting down and the lights were off, Houdini took Mina's right hand in his and pressed his right foot and leg up against hers to ensure that she stayed in her chair. Her husband took the left side and the seance got underway. Walter's first announcement was to tell Houdini directly that he had been on the train to Boston with him and had heard everything that he had been talking about. He then asked the magician where in the room he should drop the spirit trumpet. Asking out loud for the trumpet to be tossed towards him, Houdini felt the metal tube clang on the floor at his feet. In the background, the Victrola whirled round and round in its usual dizzy, swimming way, warbling music at varying speeds, and then the bell box rang across the room, piercing the heavy atmosphere. At the end of the seance, Houdini signed the report and thanked Mina for the sitting, and choosing not to stay at the Crandons like most of the others in the committee, he made his way back to his hotel room. It had been a successful seance for everyone involved, at least, or so everyone thought, except Houdini. When he arrived back at the hotel, he told Munn that the entire event had been a hoax. Better yet, he said he knew exactly how Mina had carried out every last trick, except how she had dropped the spirit trumpet at his feet. That would have to wait until tomorrow, he said, when he planned on exposing her. Unfortunately, the following day, when he arrived at Comstock's apartment, where the seance was planned to be sat, Mina approached him with somewhat less of her charm than usual, asking Houdini why he felt he could prove her to have been a fake. Bird, apparently, had heard of Houdini's plan and tipped her off ahead of time. Furious that Bird would have done such a thing, 
Houdini confronted the secretary of the commission, though instead of telling him that Mina had told him outright, he only said that he had put two and two together to come to the outcome that Bird was the snitch. Incredulous, Bird denied everything, leaving the air at the start of that night sitting incredibly awkward indeed. Despite the tense atmosphere, the seance went off as planned. Houdini remained quiet for the entire session, but afterwards he approached Munn and requested that he return with him to New York immediately to draft up a piece for the magazine, unmasking Mina as an undeniable fraud. He could explain the whole act, he said. In reply, Munn simply told him that things were different this time, effectively gagging the magician, at least until the next round of sessions had taken place in September, where all of the judges could be in attendance at once. Despite the seeming reluctance to accept Houdini's viewpoint, however, Munn did pull Bird's planned piece for that month's magazine. Fortunately for Houdini, he had an ally in Prince, who also believed Mina to have been a fake, and together the pair asked Munn to remove Bird from the investigation. Prince felt that Bird's opinions had grown unsavoury, and guessed that Bird had become so enamoured with Mina that he could no longer be impartial. Houdini went a step further and outright accused Bird of helping Mina to hoax the seances. Concerned for the reputation of the magazine, Munn agreed to sideline Bird, forbidding him to attend the next round of seances and removing him from his position as secretary of the committee. Meanwhile, whilst Prince and Houdini were starting fires in one office in New York, the Boston advertiser was starting fires in Boston by releasing a piece on Mina's real identity which they had discovered after a reporter had followed one of the investigators to the Crandon's house. Whilst the press wrote of Mina as the beautiful psychic who had proved the judges wrong and Conan Doyle right, Houdini seethed. He had until September to create a device that would prove the psychic a fraud. And so he got to work. In September, Houdini boarded a train bound for Boston. In his luggage, he submitted a large box full of cut pieces of wood that once put together would form a device imaginatively titled Houdini's Box. The box was, in essence, a square wooden cage with a sloping roof that Mina was supposed to sit in. There was a hole at the top of the slope, just wide enough for her head, and two in the sides for her arms. Despite its absolutely bizarre look, it was, he ensured the medium, the next day, after he had assembled it before the seance, entirely comfortable and nothing that he would not agree to sit in himself. With the box ready and everyone gathered in Comstock's apartment once more, Mina settled herself to begin the seance. This time, however, she requested that she be left alone with the members of the ABC club in order to get the seance started with a positive atmosphere. The members of the committee agreed and after padlocking her into the box, left the room. At 9.45pm, they were called back in. Walter was ready for them. Once more, sitting on her right side, Houdini took Mina's right hand, whilst Roy took her left as usual. For eight awkward and tense minutes, the room sat in complete silence, before the box let out a splintering crack and the front panel collapsed onto the floor. This, Mina said, was Walter. He had always had a habit of destroying spirit cabinets before, she said. As the seance fell back into silence, Mina called for a brief interlude and suggested that the ABC club members start the seance off once more. Once again, the committee members left the room. Only the next time they returned, it was not to see out the end of the seance, but instead to be greeted by outrage and accusations. Whilst everyone had been out of the room, members of the ABC club had checked the bell box and found a piece of rubber eraser stuffed inside, 
which had effectively worked to mute the bell. They accused Houdini of trying to sabotage the sitting, which the magician roundly denied. If the night could possibly have gotten any more awkward, Bird then showed up to question why he had not been invited to the seances, only for Prince to tell him that the magazine had found his infatuation with Mina to be hindering the investigation and destroying the integrity of the committee. Now it was Bird's turn to fly into an outrage, and he launched into a tirade, resigning himself from the committee, which would have been effective if Prince had not already taken his place under the direction of Munn. Eventually, the night came to a close, with just about everyone going home upset as somebody. Houdini went back to his hotel and rebuilt his box, this time choosing to use stronger staples rather than simple brass tacks. Unbelievably, despite all of the difficulties, the following day, Mina submitted to once again step inside Houdini's box as they prepared for another seance in a thoroughly stone-cold room. As the lights were turned off, Houdini once more took Mina's right hand. This time, however, he asked Prince to take her left, rather than Roy, who he suspected to have been facilitating his wife's deception. Soon after, the familiar whistle of Walter's arrival rang through the darkness. Walter, usually so full of joviality and cheek, however, was not a happy spirit. What is this you have left in the cabinet, Houdini? He called out into the room. Genuinely surprised, Houdini could only reply by asking what, as he had absolutely no idea what Walter was talking about. As it turned out, Walter had seen a six-inch collapsible ruler in the bottom of the cabinet and he called out Houdini for planting it there in order to incriminate his sister. In a torrent of violent language, he called Houdini a bastard and then said that he had cursed him with a black magic that would follow him until the day that he died. The room once more fell silent leaving everyone to sit in an awkward silence whilst nothing more happened for the rest of the night. After the seance, the tension continued as Houdini denied planting the ruler in the box. Instead, he accused Mina of dropping the ruler there herself. It was a tool that he suggested she used to ring the bell box. If there was any pretense of friendliness between the sceptics and spiritualists in the group, it was all but completely gone now. The following day, they attended the final seance between the Scientific American Committee members and Mina Crandon. For an hour, they sat in complete silence, whilst Mina sat helpless in Houdini's box. After it was clear that nothing was going to happen, the group called it a blank, and each member slowly dispersed, anger emanating from just about every angle. The November edition of the Scientific American carried four statements from Prince, Comstock, Carrington and Houdini, concluding each member of the jury's thoughts on the case. Prince wrote that, Thus far, the experiments have not scientifically and conclusively proved the exercise of supernormal powers. Whilst Carrington concluded that he was convinced that genuine phenomena have occurred here and that a prolonged series of sittings undertaken in an impartial spirit would demonstrate so. Carrington was fairly neutral, stating that he felt rigid proof had not yet been furnished, but that the case at present is interesting and should be investigated further. As expected, Houdini's statement was somewhat less polite. My decision is that everything which took place at the seances which I attended was a deliberate and conscious fraud, and that if the lady possesses any psychic power, at no time was the same proven in any of the above-dated seances. The magazine itself distanced itself somewhat cleverly from the outcome 
by saying that it was ready to pay its reward whenever the committee demeaned it appropriate and that the magazine was not the committee. The piece ended, stating that it was probable that the committee may wish to undertake further tests with Mina. It took another six months before anything was officially concluded in the February 1925 edition of the Scientific American, where it stated that, with the group voting at four to one, with only Carrington voting positively, it had been unable to find sufficient evidence to award a prize to Mina Crandon, though the piece was notably absent of any suggestion of fraud on the part of the medium. The piece, written by Prince, was brief, buried in the back of the magazine and free of any of the fun and conviviality of the earlier reports around the competition, with a rather direct conclusion. With the publication of the present statement, the discussion of the past phases of this famous case will be concluded, so far as the columns of the Scientific American are concerned. The reason for this rapid backing up by the Scientific American was the sheer amount of mudslinging that had been happening in the press in the six months since the last seance. In that time, Houdini had published a pamphlet entitled Houdini Exposes the Tricks Used by Boston Medium Marjorie, within which he gave detailed descriptions of how she had hoaxed various phenomena, including illustrations. He claimed that all the broken spirit boxes that Walter had destroyed were rigged to easily collapse under small amounts of pressure from inside. He also said that in order to trick people into believing she was not moving her feet, she had silently removed them from her shoes and then used her toes to manipulate the bell box and other objects. He said that she balanced objects on her head and flicked them to throw them across the room and also that she had raised the table using her shoulders and head. He even said that she had used an accomplice, possibly Bird or her husband Roy, to manipulate the Victrola and even at times emulate Walter's spirit voice. He suggested that in order to get around the water test, where she was given a mouthful of water to hold it in her mouth while Walter spoke, she had swallowed the water, spoken freely, then extracted a vial of fresh water from one of her orifices, which she used to fill her mouth back up before the lights came back on. He had uncovered her, he said, by using his own set of tricks, in one case by wearing a tight garter around his leg in order for it to become more sensitive so that he could feel minute movements through his calf, which he rested next to Mina's leg. As far as he was concerned, she had acted like a professional conjurer, calling her a shrewd and cunning woman with some of the slickest methods that I have ever seen. From the spiritualist side, both Roy Crandon and Arthur Conan Doyle had come out publicly to back Mina, saying that the reason for Houdini's ire was down to the fact that they had foiled him trying to plant the ruler on Mina in order to frame her and discredit spiritualism. Even Walter chipped in at a later seance, explaining to the sitters that no manifestations had occurred whilst Mina was in Houdini's box, simply because she had been depleted of ectoplasm. Bird suggested that the box had cut off the psychic current and Mina herself spoke to the press, saying that the box had been a psychic insulator. With the press really dragging things into the gutter, there were reports that she had told Houdini on the night of the last seance that she did not want her son growing up knowing her mother was a fraud, whilst Dr. Crandon had allegedly offered to pay $10,000 to charity if Houdini would only see the spiritist light. Following the contest, Houdini embarked on a speaking tour of America, heavily protested by spiritualists, in which he explained that he was simply trying to stem the flow of the spiritualist flood and was working in order to keep people from going crazy on the subject of spooks, ghosts, goblins and eerie voices. If anyone was in any doubt as to the status of his friendship with Conan Doyle, 
He put that to bed comfortably when he said, Doyle and Sir Oliver and other big men are leading a lot of folks to the bug house because they have befuddled themselves into believing that the dead communicate with the living. He even mocked up a set on the stage, mimicking the layout of Mina's seance room, where he emulated her tricks for the crowd following the demonstration, and then followed the demonstration up with questions from the audience in order to fully address the entire investigation. Houdini's scepticism went all the way with him to the grave a year later in 1926. Throughout the whole time, he had never once wavered from his beliefs that spiritualist mediums were wholesale fraud. A year later, Conan Doyle published an article titled The Riddle of Houdini, within which he suggested that Houdini had not only been the greatest medium beta of modern times, but also the greatest medium of all times, attributing his skill in magic to otherworldly powers. Whilst it was written with a certain amount of kindness, it seems fair to believe that the suggestion would have infuriated the magician if he were alive to have read the piece himself. In many respects, the Scientific American competition highlighted the problems with psychical research between the wars. The biases, the rifts in belief, the propensity to revel in pseudoscience and the confused focus between metaphysics and parapsychology were all hallmarks that troubled much of the research carried out between divided and fractured societies. Even the vague, tempered conclusion relates to hundreds, if not thousands of cases written about in psychical journeys in the years between 1920 and 1940. Following the completion of the Scientific American investigation, Mina continued to give seances, including sittings for the British and American societies for psychical research. Walter's powers continued to evolve and eventually Mina was able to manifest spirit hands consisting of a greyish-white clammy substance which would grab objects on the table in front of her and wave them about. The sceptics suggested that it had been created from animal tissue and would be smuggled into the seance room inside Mina's vagina. Whether a fraud or not, she continued to perform until her death in 1941. The same year, the Scientific American upped the prize money for its competition to $15,000, though it never did pay out a single cent. Well, that was quite a story. Uh, Yeah, the story of Mina Crandon and the Scientific American. We'll talk a little bit, just a bit about that, because it's been a long episode, but we'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for listening. What a story, yo. What a great story of uh, 
a great time actually uh, a period that i really enjoy researching for dark histories with that that kind of like interwar period uh, where sort of spiritualism was really booming it's really it, i mean you know it's 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 a fascinating period you've got you know the society for psychical research was probably in their like absolute peak period at that point um yeah so it, it's a great period to research um this actual story though despite it being a really long episode it's, this is seriously just a brief overview of what actually happened. Um, you know, I, I do like to be as detailed as possible with dark histories, and I, and I, but in this case, I had to literally almost be as detailed as possible whilst keeping it like flowing and and a story like in an hour because I mean you could easily make a twelve part podcast series on this story, and the great thing about it is you could do that probably quite easily because if you're interested in this story, there is so, so, so much out on the internet, like freely available. Basically, almost everyone involved with this case was sort of academically inclined in, in some way. So they pretty much all wrote books about it. Um, so there's tons of books about it from all different angles and perspectives. You've got the skeptics, you've got the believers. You know, if Houdini wasn't there very much, You've got like Bird's book, which was there when he wasn't. And, you know, so you, it really feels like every gap. And then you've got like all of the, um, you know, the entrance. I mean, there, there is so much about it. The entire archive of the Scientific American in this period is on um, free ava- freely available in on archive.org. Um, so, you know, you can read all the issues of that. And then, of course, you've got like the New York Times archives, the newspaper archives. There's just so much. The story, almost from start to finish, um, is told in minute detail. So, yeah, if you are interested in this story, there's loads freely available online to get into. Some of it's behind a paywall, um, like the New York Times articles, for example. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for like older newspaper, old newspaper articles and things like that, they're, they're all behind paywalls. But, um, yeah, the Scientific American, freely available. And a lot of the books are available for free. Some of the books are not available for free. Some of them you have to get physical and they're quite expensive. But to be honest, one or two will do you. Do you know what I mean? Um, depending on what sort of angles you want to read. It's th- th- I would definitely suggest reading at least the Scientific American articles because completely off topic now, but they've got a section of the Scientific American um, that's called uh, New and Interesting Inventions. And you can imagine which ones are the best fun right the interesting ones are the best fun it's an excellent little piece to read um you know in today's day and age because it's it's just hilarious what they put in there but it's it's a great snapshot of the period um and it's yeah it's freely available so um definitely if you're interested in this story there is so much out there um that's say freely available to read on um and there is a there is a book there's a modern like a book that's written about it as well which is quite long um I, I liked it for the most part. It's called it's called uh, oh it's called The Witch of Lime Street: Seance, Seduction, and Houdini in the Spirit World um, by David Jaha or Yaha Yaha Jaha. I'm not sure. It's uh, in the sources anyway. If you want to check that out, that's like a, a modern book on the story, um, and and that is good actually. Um, it's it's not the easiest to read, um, but it's um, yeah it's a it's, it's a good book on it. Uh, but yeah, it's personally, I, I would um, spend you know a lot of time looking at the contemporary sources because they're they're a lot of fun uh, and there's they're abundant. So yeah, um, but otherwise, uh, yeah, interesting story. Interestingly, that um, you know Mina never actually really gets 
officially called out as a hoax. Uh, not by this committee anyway. You know, Houdini obviously convinced that she's a hoax. Uh, the, the others, uh, not so much. Uh, and um, in fact, later on in her life, she was investigated by a bunch of people. Um, and a few of them suggested that she was hoaxing stuff, but not, I don't think or, uh, she was ever sort of completely um, unmasked as a hoax, which is quite interesting. For a, a lot of these mediums at that time, they were completely stripped bare. You know, the, the, most of the time they were caught red-handed and, and sort of really caught out. You know, you, you would have like, um, you know, mediums being caught smuggling things like up all sorts of cracks and uh, um, stuff like that. Whereas Mina, I don't think she was ever sort of uh, like nailed down caught sort of thing, um, which is, you know, interesting. I, I, don't, I don't think she was a medium. I think, um, I think it's fairly obvious that she had, uh, accomplices um, in the room. She apparently she was having an affair with one of the committee members, um, which is I- interesting. Um, there, there's a lot of misogyny uh, that was going on at the time as well. You know, the committee members were you know pompous old men, um, and she's a young lady, and and you know it's there were there, there was definitely a lot of misogyny going on. But that's sort of but by the by, um, you know, we're just just talking about her as a medium. I don't. I obviously don't think she was real, uh, and I could say uh, I think she almost definitely had either her husband or Bird, and and maybe the the committee member that she was having an, uh, an affair with. I think it was Carrington that she was having an affair with. One or if not all of them were probably uh, helping her, and and you also wonder they were probably all wow. So this is the weird thing is you wonder how much of it they believed in those final seances where she got the ABC Club to. Um, start the seances off uh, without the committee being present, right? you got to think that that wasn't them starting the seance off. That was probably them getting, like, putting their heads together and go saying, like, right, how are we going to get out of this? And, and then coming up with the idea of the ruler, right, and saying it was a plan. But if that's the case, how did they then continue to sit with her and believe things like Walter saying that she was out of ectoplasm? Because they would have been complicit in her forging her way out of the tests unless you know that I, I, I don't know it's I think Houdini was right when he said that you know they befuddled themselves into believing that they could communicate with the dead I think it is just the case of that because it's you got to think like when a lot of people do get caught so I'll come back to Mina in a second but when a lot of other mediums got caught it was so obvious and you just thought, oh, come on, how did anyone believe that in the first place? And so you wonder that with Mina's because when you read the descriptions of a lot of Mina's uh, supposed manifestations, they're pretty impressive. Like she did things like stop clocks, apparently, that were in a completely different room and uh, with the uh, wax seals on the doors. That's one of the things I read early on in her kind of career. And it's like, okay, how did she do that? If that's real. So you wonder how much of it is people just lying. And like, it, and this is what I sort of hinted at in my conclusion that when you do read a lot of the psychical research that was going on between the wars in like that interwar period, so much of it is guff. You know, you know that the, the, the investigator wanted to believe and was probably twisting their reports to sound more positive 
than they than they actually were. And, and it's it's it is a shame. It does make it difficult, but it also makes that period, like I say, really interesting. Um, yeah, in terms of Mina, I think all of these things were happening. I think a lot of it was fake, and I also think a lot of it was um, embellished uh, to sound more impressive than it was. Because otherwise, I mean, the, the table playing the piano, for example, I don't think that. I mean. Maybe she just lobbed the table at the piano and it just made a clang. I don't know because, I mean, all I know is I've got 10 fingers and I play the piano and I don't do it very well. If I was a table, I would play it even worse because I ain't got no fingers. So I, I don't know. You know, I know that it wasn't going to, you know, it didn't play the piano. And the other thing with the table sort of bowling down the corridor and pushing the guy along, like, did that happen or was that just embellishment? You've got to think that was just an embellishment because... Either that, or she really did do all these things, and she really was a spirit medium, and Walter really was uh, back from the dead, um, you know. And and I just don't, I don't think that's true. I think that's, but that, but that's really the only other answer, the only other conclusion that you can draw, is that it was all fake and embellished, or it was true. There is no like real middle ground here. I don't know. I I, I think it was basically all just fake and embellished, but um, that's just me. Anyway. A really interesting story that the Houdini and the Conan Doyle element is interesting, you know, that that kind of head to head. I do think that Houdini was possibly carrying biases into the, the uh, in, into the investigation. I think, you know, I don't think any of the investigators actually were, were, were probably uh, very honest with themselves. Prince, I think, is the only one that comes across to me as being like relatively straight and narrow. The others seem to all have gone in with fairly heavy biases. Um, and I think, yeah, I do think, um, you know, reading uh, some of uh, Houdini's uh, descriptions of how he thinks that she did the tricks, I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure it's true. I'm not sure she did do it that way. I sometimes think he, that he gives her almost too much credit. Having said that, she did fool people for all these years, so maybe she was just really, really good at her sort of magic and, uh, you know, illusions and tricks. Uh, she seemed to have been fairly dexterous with her feet, at least. Uh, but yeah, uh, interesting story. I hope you enjoyed it. It was quite a long one, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, thanks very much for listening. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can do so. Um, the email is contact at darkhistories.com. There's also uh, all the links to social media and stuff in the show notes, which you can, you know, DM me on there. There's also the website, which uh, is darkhistories.com, and that's got links to just about everything, uh, you know, all the ways that you can contact me. It's got the email and all of the um, social media and Discord and stuff like that. Uh, if you would like to support the show, I've got a Patreon. It's pretty cheap. It's like uh, $3 a month, although I know times are pretty hard at the moment. But if you would like to um, support then uh, that'd be great uh, you can f again find links to that in the show notes and on the website the website's great basically you can find everything on the website and that includes like even um, my codes that I give out um, for um, advertising and stuff like better help and you know all that kind of stuff if, if, if you need to look up one of them codes they're well they're in the show notes as well but they are also in the website say as well as um, Patreon and other ways that you can support uh and links to the merch store and the books and everything's on the website. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Uh, really, really good story this week. I really enjoyed it. I hope you really did too. And um, yeah, until next time, uh, take care. I'll be back real soon next episode.
Uh, oh, yeah. And if you're on Spotify, stop being on Spotify. How about that? Um, but hopefully, the, if you are going to stick around on Spotify, because that's what you like. Fair enough. Hopefully the episodes will all be back uh, soon. Uh, I, I will continue to work with Spotify to get them back on there um, as soon as possible. But yeah, anyway, until next time, thanks very much for listening. Take care. Sleep tight. Sleep tight.